Good morning. Um, morning. Our passage this morning is going to be from Matthew 7, verses 21 through 23. If you would turn there with me. Again, Matthew 7, verses 21 through 23. Going to read. So, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. This is the word of the Lord. Let us go to him in prayer. Our Father and our God, we thank you and we praise you for this day, the beautiful day that it is, that we can come together, gather with your people, fellowship with your people, and worship your name. We just pray now that you would give me your words and open our hearts to receive them. In your Son's name, amen. Amen. Have you ever questioned your faith? The scriptures contain many calls for us to examine our faith, to examine our life to see whether it shows the fruit of the Spirit. We talk about total assurance, about the perseverance of the saints, but still sometimes we wonder whether or not we're actually saints. Have you ever gotten that nagging feeling, that voice in the back of your head saying, but maybe I'm not good enough? But maybe my faith hasn't been real enough. But maybe I've done some sin that I haven't repented of. But maybe I've never actually been a Christian. Maybe I've just been fooling myself this whole time. And then you look at at this passage, and Christ seems like he's saying, yeah. (laughs) Maybe you have been fooling yourself. And maybe you won't even know it until the final judgment. In fact, his words here can even make us feel like we can't even know until the final judgment. Like maybe the Christian life is just holding out hope that we aren't fooling ourselves, holding out hope that we had the right kind of faith. The good news of our message this morning is that that is not the Christian hope. Our hope is not the hope that we had the right kind of faith, but it is the certainty that God has worked his faith in us. For that is what biblical hope is. But how is that present in this passage? How does this passage give us hope when it seems like it only gives despair? Now, one of the first things you always need to do when studying a passage is to consider its context. If we want to know why these verses aren't meant to lead us to despair, we must look at our context. These verses aren't just randomly thrown in here. And so, if we want to understand them, we first have to understand where we're at, or where they're at, and why they're there. So, to situate ourselves in this passage, we're at this point on the tail end of the Sermon on the Mount. Christ has gone through the Beatitudes, he's taught his disciples how to pray, he's taught them about trusting in him, about how to properly judge others, he's given them the golden rule. And then, if we look at the section immediately before ours, we see he's been talking about trees and their fruits. He's nearing the end of his sermon, so now he's explaining how to tell the difference between those who are his followers 
and those who only claim to be. And what he says is that you will recognize them by their fruits, which we know from Luke's telling doesn't just refer to false prophets, but to false Christians in general. He tells us we can recognize the false Christians by their fruits, and then he leads us into this section, because this section is an illustration of his previous point. This section is an illustration on the topic of true and false fruits. So if we want to know what Christ's message is here, we first have to look at false fruits, and then at true fruits, and then at the ramifications and the applications of this. So that's what we'll be looking at this morning. False fruits, true fruits, and finally, how Christ meant for us to apply this passage. So first, the false fruits. The basic question being asked in this section of Scripture is, again, who are the children of God? How can the children of God be known? Christ talked just before our section about people being known by their fruits, about how every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. Now, if we were in Jesus' audience, we might naturally be thinking, okay, well, what counts as good fruit? What is the fruit that will be displayed in my life if I am a child of God? And so Christ first tells his audience what the fruit is not. Jesus had told them every healthy tree bears good fruit, and so the self-righteous people in his audience might have been feeling pretty good at this point. A healthy tree bears good fruit? Well, just look at all the amazing things that I've done. I've got all the fruit. I've prophesied. I've cast out demons. I am awesome. (laughs) Just look at all the good fruit I have. And that's where today's passage comes in. Christ has told them that a healthy tree bears good fruit. And now in this passage, he preempts this sort of self-righteous thinking that some might have had. And so he continues clarifying for his audience, No, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Okay, these men might say, we've done his will. Again, we've checked that box. As they say, Lord, Lord, do we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, do many mighty works in your name? They've done the mighty works. They even seem to have their theology in line. They acknowledge Christ as the Lord. That line, Lord, Lord, is Bible shorthand for saying they have sound theology, or at least sound Christology. So these men must have been thinking to themselves, what more can this Christ want from us than sound theology and mighty works? We most certainly belong in his kingdom. So again, Christ tells them that they must have good works, and their imagined response is, well, that's great news. Our theology is good. We have prophesied in your name. We've cast out demons. We've done great and mighty works all in your name. And to them Christ responds, I never knew you. Depart from me. They had done mighty things, even mighty things in the name of Christ, but apparently they had not done the will of the Father. They had not borne truly good fruit. 
So again, we must ask who are the children of God and what are the true fruits that the healthy tree bears? What is it to do the will of the Father? If we peek down to the section after hours, we can get our answer. Those who had fruit are not the ones who did these mighty works, who prophesied and cast out demons, but as it says in verse 24, those who hear these sayings of mine and do them. Here we have reached the end of the Sermon on the Mount, and at the end of every good sermon, there is an application. And Christ's application is that if we want to know what the true fruits of the Spirit look like, if we want to know what it looks like to be living out the will of God in our lives, if we want to know whether or not we are fulfilling the will of God in our lives, we will be doing the things that Christ has been talking about up to this point in the sermon. We will hear these sayings and do them. And what are the sayings of his sermon? Again, our section of text today is at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. So if we want to know what these sayings are, we might do well to go back to the, back to the beginning. So what does a Sermon on the Mount begin with? The Sermon on the Mount begins with the Beatitudes. That is where we can look to find the true fruits, the true marks of the Christian life. That is where Christ has laid out the good fruit, where he has laid out what it looks like to do the will of the Father. The transformed heart will proclaim itself in our life. But what is its fruit? It's not the charismatic and the powerful things, not the things that are flashy and the things which impress, but the things of the Beatitudes. Those who enter the kingdom of God are those who do the will of the Father, and the will of the Lord is, as we see in the Beatitudes, meekness, mercy, hungering and thirsting after righteousness, being a peacemaker. And then just after the Beatitudes, we see that it expresses itself in giving to the needy and fasting and praying and doing these things not to be seen by others but because they are good and they glorify God. And so the fruit of the Spirit includes also a lack of hypocrisy. Or we might look to the fruit of the Spirit as proclaimed by Paul in Galatians in his classic list. It is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. These are the fruits that mark the children of God. These are the evidences that mark the true children of God, the evidences of the Beatitudes. This is the good fruit that the healthy tree bears. And a healthy tree will bear good fruit because what a person is, is bound to show. In this we see the biblical relationship between grace and works. As Christ says, no good tree bears bad fruit or a bad tree good fruit. But each out of the treasure of their hearts, their fruits will show. And so the fruits are an outworking of what is on the inside. They do not determine what is on the inside, but they showcase it. One of the better ways of saying this is, it's often put, is that we are saved by faith alone, but our faith is, not, is never alone. Or as Calvin puts it specifically, it is therefore faith alone which justifies, yet the faith which justifies is not alone. So this passage isn't here to cast doubt into your soul, 
to make you believe that there is no way you can be sure of your faith until the final judgment. To make you believe that maybe you've just been fooling yourself this whole time, that you're going to meet Christ at the resurrection. He's going to say, you know, your faith was just too weak. You only thought you had faith in me. That's not what this passage is here to say because that's not the issue these prophets had in the passage. Their issue was not that they thought they were trusting in Christ and that their trust turned out to be insufficient or fake. Their issue was that they were not trusting in Christ to begin with, but in themselves. This passage is not addressing a faith that seems real but isn't, but a lack of faith. So the thrust of this passage is about the self-deception that comes when we rely on false evidences of salvation, when we rely on our own works, our own great and mighty deeds. And then it shows us the true evidences. It is attacking the false assurance that believing in our, of believing in ourselves rather than in Christ. But so what, and what difference should this make in our lives? I'm actually like halfway through the sermon, and I'm already coming to the application. Because that's what this text is. It's a text about application. It's at the end of Christ's own sermon. It's his applications. First, this should provide us with humility. The men in this passage thought they deserved to be accepted into the kingdom. Their attitude is not the humble attitude of, say, the Canaanite woman, not the humble attitude of a child of God relying on their father's grace. If you think you deserve to be accepted into the kingdom based on your own merit, then you will not enter the kingdom. And that should provide us with humility. We should also remember that we too face the temptation to evaluate ourselves like the men in this passage. Even now we can be tempted to evaluate ourselves in terms of the law rather than grace. And when we catch ourselves doing this, we should be reminded that we are not yet glorified and we sh that should provide us with further humility. We still have further to go. But also remember that being humble isn't the same as wallowing in shame or unworthiness. We regularly point out that we are undeserving, that we, oh, we're dead in our trespasses, with all, the, with all of our righteousness as filthy rags. But it's important to, for us to remember that for those of us who trust in Christ, that is no longer what defines us. We are no longer defined by shame or unworthiness. This is why both Calvin and Luther said that the condemning aspect of the law, that aspect of the law that says, you don't measure up, you deserve hell. That aspect of the law was meant primarily for the unregenerate. If you've been accepted by Christ, then that is no longer the main way the law applies to you. It no longer exists simply to condemn, but to guide those who have been made alive in the paths of holiness. Sometimes we can focus so much on our own inability, our need for humility, that we forget that we have now been given life. We are no longer defined by our shame, by our unworthiness, because we are alive, and when Christ looks at us, he sees the righteousness of Christ. And this gives us power that we didn't have before when we were dead. It gives us the power to harness the grace that God has given us in our daily lives. 
Which means, secondly, these truths should spurn us towards cultivating the true fruit. We can try and order our lives around big moments. I did that in college all the time, these mountaintop experiences. If I can just have a mountaintop experience, we try and order around those and mighty works. But that's not where our faith really lives. Our faith lives in our day-to-day lives. There is no indication that these men actually lived out their faith day-to-day, even if they did have these mountaintop experiences of prophesying and casting out demons. So how do you live out your faith day to day? Do you, like the Beatitudes, promote peace? Do you strive to be kind and patient to those in your lives? Or is your mind continually churning out hate against those around you? Do you sit at your desk and drive down the road and just mull over your anger, having imaginary arguments in your head? Or... Are you a peacemaker, continually trying and striving to build up your brothers and sisters, to restore and mend broken relationships? Do you seek to exercise self-control, or do you allow your temper to have its way with you? Do you seek purity of mind and action? Do you pray, and not just over your meals, but really petition the Lord daily, giving Him glory and thanksgiving, interceding for others? asking for forgiveness, and asking for the will to forgive others as well who have wronged you? Are you seeking his blessing? Do you tithe? Do you give to those who are in need? Or do you store up all of your earthly possessions for yourself? Do you hoard the blessings of God rather than using God's gifts to be a blessing to others? These are all areas where we are, throughout the Sermon on the Mount, empowered and enlivened to, us, to serve our Lord. And you can do them. You have the Spirit in you giving you that ability. You will not be perfect yet, but you you will continue to struggle, but you will grow. You may not always succeed in what you try to do, but you will always be sanctified in the process as you try to be more like Christ. So we should have humility and cultivate the true fruit, And as we do so, we must also avoid self-reliance. I just now said that you have the power and the ability, but it is not, but it is an ability that is drawn through the Spirit, not ourselves. It's not a power through self-reliance, but through reliance upon the Spirit. And there, but there is often a self-reliance in us, even still, and that reliance is expressed in two ways. The first is the charismatic error of relying on, again, those great and mighty works, of relying on the gifts of the Spirit rather than the graces, because there is a difference between the gifts and the grace of the Spirit. The gifts of the Spirit, prophecy, casting out demons, doing miracles, can actually be given to anybody, believer or unbeliever. We see that at various points throughout the Bible, and including our passage today, particularly But the graces of the Spirit, the renewed heart bought with the blood of Christ that brings forth the fruit of the Beatitudes, that is only given to the elect. The gifts of the Spirit are wonderful things, but they are nothing compared with the graces of the Spirit. They count for nothing without the grace of the Spirit. This is why Paul says in in Corinthians that, Though I speak in the tongues of men and angels, if I have not love, I am a resounding gong. 
The gifts are wonderful, but the grace is the heart. So there is the, the charismatic error, and then there is the error that we, as Reformed people, are more likely to fall into. And that is the area of thinking that sound theology is all that matters. As Martin Lloyd-Jones says when he's commenting on this passage, a man who is not born again may accept the scriptural teaching as a kind of philosophy, as an abstract truth. People can accept the system and theology of Christianity without trusting in its God. Saving faith is not simply about believing what God says is true, but trusting in the God who says that it is true. Belief is absolutely necessary, but that's only half the equation. The other half is actually trusting in and relying upon the God that you believe in. As James says, even the demons believe there is one God, and as we saw here, even the false prophets can believe that Christ is his Son. These men believed in God, believed in Christ, but they did not trust Him. They did not rely upon Him. When faced with Christ, their King, they did not throw themselves at His feet saying, Lord, Lord, it is to Your merit that we cling, to Your work that we trust. But seeing Christ, their King, they said, Lord, Lord, look at what we have done. Look at all of our mighty works. But the true Christian could never say that. The true Christian can never bear to look upon Christ their King and say, Look at my mighty works. No, they could only say, Lord, Lord, look at your mighty works. For that trust, that reliance is the mark of the true Christian. And this should drive us home to our final point, to Christ's own point in this passage, to assurance. Assurance is Christ's own key application. He tells us that every tree bears good fruit, and that not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. He tells us that his response to some at the resurrection will be, I never knew you, depart from me. But then what does he say immediately following that up? What does he follow it up with? Assurance. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like the, a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. That, my friends, is assurance. When we, when we read this passage, we can be tempted to take it as a reason for despair, as a reason for doubt, as a reason for anxiety. But that's not the way Christ uses it. Christ uses it to lead immediately into assurance. Not to throw us onto shaky ground, not to make us question whether or not we are good enough, whether our faith was real enough, whether we forgot to confess some sin that is going to damn us. No, Christ uses it to lead into assurance, to give us the same assurance of the one who builds their house upon the rock, knowing that the floods and the storms of life cannot overcome it. We see the false foundation, the foundation of mighty works and the mountaintop experiences, a foundation that cannot stand. 
We see this false foundation in those who attempt to gain God's favor through their own works. But there is also a true foundation. There is a true foundation. This foundation comes with two forms of assurance. Our primary assurance, as always, comes from the finished work of Christ on the cross, brought about by the sovereign decree of our God. That is eternally settled, and so settled that it cannot be altered by either man or devil. The finished work of Christ is that to which we ultimately appeal. We are united with Christ. Our sins have been pardoned, and his righteousness is within us. And since our sins have been pardoned and Christ's righteousness is within us, God cannot cast us out. That is our primary assurance, but we also have this secondary assurance. This secondary assurance is the assurance brought by seeing the good fruit that must naturally be produced by a tree that is made good and healthy by the Spirit. As we read in the Westminster Confession of Faith, good works are the fruits and evidences of a true and lively faith, intended not only to glorify God and to manifest our thankfulness and to adorn our profession of the gospel, but to strengthen our assurance. The good works that you produce through God's grace are designed in part to strengthen your faith even further. But again, what are those fruits and evidences of a true and, li and lively faith? As we have said, they're not the mighty works, the gifts of prophecy and casting out demons, but the evidences of the Beatitudes, meekness, mercy, hungering and thirsting for righteousness, a lack of hypocrisy where we do good for God's glory rather than to be seen by others. Those are the evidences of the true faith. These are the tests of the true faith, the tests of the Beatitudes. So we don't enter the kingdom of God saying, Lord, Lord, look at what we've done. But Lord, Lord, oh, how sweet it is what you have done. The true Christian can never bear to look at Christ and say, look at my works. They can only say, Lord, Lord, look at your works. That is what it means to be a child of God. It is to trust in his works rather than our own. Whenever you get that nagging feeling, that voice in the back of your head saying, but maybe I'm not good enough, but maybe I've done some sin that I haven't repented of, but maybe, but maybe. That is the voice of the demons, of the accuser and his kin, who are constantly trying to get you to think of your relationship with God in terms of the law. <coughs> you should be aware of sin in your life and try and root it out, but that is not where your relationship is determined. That voice is trying to drag you back under Adam, but you are no longer of Adam. You are of Christ. Christ is your head. Christ is your foundation. And that foundation cannot be moved. It cannot be moved by you. It cannot be moved by your failings. It cannot be moved by either height, nor depth, nor angels, or demons, powers, or principalities, or anything else in all of creation. Nothing is able to separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, your Lord. Do not let your sins make you despair because Christ came for sinners. But let them spurn you on to greater holiness. Christ will not destroy you. 
So you must not try and destroy yourself in your despair. If you see so much sin in your life that you worry you have no grace, then take heart for a dead man, a dead woman, would never have that worry. Could never have that worry. Only one who is alive is able to see the sin in their life for what it is. Only one who is alive is able to feel a holy remorse for not living as holy a life as they should. We are still battling against the remaining sin in our lives. And the very fact that you are engaged in that battle is a wonderful assurance that you are alive. For the dead do not fight. I say again that Christ is your head, Christ is your foundation, and that foundation cannot be moved, like a house built on the rock. His righteousness is within you. Remind yourself of that in the morning and in the evening. And whenever Satan throws his darts at you, remind yourself, Christ's righteousness is within me. Remember that Christ is your immovable foundation your house on the rock, and when the floods come, when the demons assail, when the unholy things blow and beat against that house, it will not ultimately fall because it is founded on the rock. So rest upon that foundation. And when you rest upon that foundation, you will not be able to keep yourself from producing fruit any more than a seed planted in the good soil and nourished by the good gardener can keep from growing. You are the seed planted and rooted in the work of Christ, tended by the Father, absorbing and being filled with the Holy Spirit through His gracious love. You cannot fail to grow and you cannot fail to produce good fruit. And when you see that fruit, when you see the fruit of the Beatitudes being made real in your life, then let that drive home all the more the assurance of Christ as your Savior who is finishing and will absolutely finish the good work that he started in you. Let us go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father and our God, we praise you that you are our rock, that you are our foundation. And Lord, we pray that you would guard us against the false assurances, that you would guard us against feeling that it is because of our mighty works that we are saved. But let us know, rest, let us rest on your foundation. Let us say, Lord, Lord, it is to your work that we cling. It is to your merit that we cling. Let us say that and let us produce the true fruit of the Spirit in our lives. And when we do that, let us see that fruit and be assured all the more that you are finishing the good work that you started in us. Because you will finish it. Because you have adopted us. You are our Father. And we know that you have the power and the ability because yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.